many of you, it's seeing you for the first time, which we love that because I don't think we've been here since the fall. And, uh, and that this is part of our, our multi-church campus, I, if you want to call it strategy or philosophy, or maybe we could call it a value, is that we want all the campus pastors at the different locations to move around a little bit. And uh, this idea of being one church and three locations, and ultimately even more than that, that we want to have a sense of connection with each other. And, uh, and that's going to be moving the campus pastors around uh, from time to time. So we're always going to have live teaching and live music at every campus. We know that different churches do that differently, and that's not, it's right for them. But what, what is right for us is that we always want to have the flexibility to change whatever we feel like we need to change in the moment to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. In order to do that, you've, you need to be live. And, uh, and so all of our campus pastors have to have a teaching and preaching calling that's on their life. And, uh, and so the Suffolk campus that launched in January with uh, Pastor Justin and Stephanie have uh, been a part of our team for many years, so we're excited for them and, uh, and excited to see what's happening here in Williamsburg. And, so, and then some of that is just to encourage you. One Saturday night, just go to a different campus. I know sometimes you see some Newport News people that might show up here, and, and uh, we're excited to be able to get down to the Suffolk campus uh, in April. And, uh, and so you get a, a chance to uh, experience your city life, your, your, your bigger city life family uh, that's meeting in the, in the area. So, so let me, I've got a couple of things I just want to talk about before we get into uh, tonight's message, which I think is going to be a great precursor to, the, uh, to Easter weekend. But uh, these are cards. I think these are on your seat. Uh, I think I see them on there. These are cards that we hand out at the beginning of the year, every year. Uh, for City Life. We've been doing it for several years. And uh, the top one is what we call your faith promise. Uh, faith promise is how we raise money for missions. So we support missionaries. We support missions organizations. Uh, we give money to missions endeavors. And uh, we do that through our Faith Promise Fund. Uh, how Faith Promise works is that we ask the church to pray every year for God to give you a number. And then you believe by faith that he's going to provide that to you. And that when he does, you've made a promise that you're going to give it to the Faith Promise Initiative. We don't want you to put your card on your name on this card. It's not a pledge. Nobody follows up with you. It's just between you and God. And, uh, but we, I'll turn them in at the uh, first weekend in April. And that just helps us put together our budget. So let me. this was one I got. At the end of last year, we, sent, we asked you to send in your faith promise story. We'll take your name out to, just to protect your anonymity with your giving. But we like to share these stories because they inspire our faith. This is at the beginning of the year, which was last year. I felt like God gave me a number. And this number at the time seemed unreasonable and was more than double what we did for last year. I hesitated to tell my wife. And after some time, of course, I told her. And we both agreed that we would wait and see what God would do. Months went by and nothing happened. Till one day we got some news. The children my wife had been caring for for over three years, they do in-home uh, child care, and were now going to be cared for by their grandmother. It was a big blow to us financially. However, the dad, as a thank you, left a very large check in the exact amount that we had promised that we were going to give through Faith Promise. But the plot thickens. We also at the time had a vehicle that died and had two other unexpected bills to pay. So I wrestled with God, and this is this family, they wrestled with God, and this is what they said. They said, if he can give it to us once, he can give it to us again. That's great faith, isn't it? If he gave it to us once, he can give it to us again. He knows that I, he knew that I wanted to give it. That was the faith promise they had made, and that's what he had provided, but now they had this, this need. So, plus their income had been cut significantly. So this was a very hard decision to make. A little while later, I had the opportunity to teach an online class, which was an answer to prayer in itself, but I found out the amount that I was going to be paid was the exact amount that we had promised through 
our faith promise. It's good stuff, isn't it? And so they were able to give to faith promise. Now you might say, well, if God does something unexpectedly in my life, then I'll give. But he might not do something unexpectedly in your life, right? Because it takes faith to draw those things in. And so faith promise is just an amazing way for you to experience God's provision in a supernatural way. The 2020 vision that's on here, I, I like that I get to talk with you about this because this is why you're here, right? Five years ago, in the fall of 20, 2011, the Newport News campus was the only campus that we have, and they made a decision to give sacrificially to start this campus, right? And so, and many of them never have even been a part of this campus, but they gave to make it happen. Our 2020 vision is the money that we are trying to build every year to continue to launch more campuses in this region and also build on our school of leadership that we have called Praxis 9. And so what we're asking, it's called the 2020 vision because it goes through the year 2020, and we're asking everybody to participate that, participate in that just one time. So if you participated in it last year, you're done through the year 2020. So just everybody take a turn. This one's a little bit different from Faith Promise in that, that we ask that you just look at your budget and ask yourself, some, where can I make some sacrifices to give to this 2020 Vision Fund. So last year, we raised over $80,000 between this campus and the Newport News campus to help launch the Suffolk campus. And so we're believing God just for this year that about 20 to 30 that we would be able to raise through the 2020 Vision. So those are just things for you to pray about and think about if you call this your church home. Okay, that's enough for my announcements. All right. So, so I, you know, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and, uh, and, and, and so I have this fondness for church history because you, in the Episcopal Church and other high church experiences, you follow a calendar. Does that make sense? That every kind of what you preach on on those weekends is kind of established for you based on the story of the history of the church. And so this would be, right, Palm Sunday weekend uh, for churches. In many churches, that's their theme. And during the worship, I realized that that's really going to be our theme. We're going to be talking about idolatry tonight. And, and I realized as we were worshiping together and just praying uh, about the, the, the message tonight that the, the people when Jesus came in the triumphal entry, right, where they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means none can save but you. That's the, 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 the worship they were giving him. That idolatry, you and I have been taught our whole lives, is about misplaced worship. Now, they were worshiping the right person in the right moment when they did that. But, but the same people that were worshiping him on that day, many of them were the same people that were calling for him to be crucified just a few days later. And I believe that they, if they understood what we're going to learn tonight about idolatry, that they might have continued their praise instead of calling for his crucifixion. And so this is our, our Palm Sunday weekend, or Palm Palm, I, I, the, uh, even though we're a Saturday church, right, we joke that we just get a head start on everybody else, right? Next weekend, it's Easter Saturday, we get to celebrate his resurrection ahead of everybody else, and then you get to sleep in, which is always a, bo a bonus, huh? All right, so you know, we're, our series, we're calling it the Good News Series, and so uh, most weeks, I'm, you know, working in the phrase, you know, how many of you have used the phrase, I've got good news and bad news, Right? And uh, so I like to always hear the bad news first because I want to end on a good note. And so I've got good news and bad news for you tonight. The bad news, the bad news is that all of us have been guilty of idolatry at some point in our lives, right? I've been guilty of idolatry. You've been guilty of idolatry. The, the, let me give you the uh, a definition that you and I have been taught our whole lives is that idolatry in a general sense is the paying of divine honor 
to any created thing. It's the ascription of divine power to natural agencies. That's a fancy way of saying that when you worship anything as God that isn't God, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. Now, the good news is we're going to learn about idolatry in a way that I think that maybe many of you have never learned about idolatry before. That's good news because of John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. It says, Jesus said to the people who believed, said to the people who, be, who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you Free. It will set you free. So, so what does that say in John 8? It's saying that if there's desire for obedience, if there's, then there's revelation of truth, then there's the possibility for freedom in your life. And so I trust the fact that you're actually here tonight, right, and not somewhere else, that that means there's desire in your heart for obedience to God. And what we're going to be doing over these next half hour or so, there's going to be revelation of truth that comes to us out of God's word. And that creates the possibility for us to be free from a form of idolatry that sometimes we don't even realize that we have. So we're going to be working out of our text. It's going to be Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And then I'm going to pick up in verse 15. But be very careful. You did not see the Lord's form on the day that he spoke to you from the heart of the fire at Mount Sinai. This is, this is Moses, God speaking through Moses to the people about when the Israelites came out of Egypt. So do not corrupt yourselves by making an idol in any form, whether of a man or a woman, an animal on the ground, or a bird in the sky, a small animal that scurries along the ground, or fish in the deepest sea. And when you look up into the sky and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the forces of heaven, don't be seduced into worshiping them. The Lord gave them to, gave them to all the people of the earth, Remember that the Lord rescued you from the iron smelting furnace of Egypt in order to make you his very own people and his special possession, which is what you are today. Now I'm going to read verse 21. It doesn't have anything to do with my sermon, but it makes me laugh every time I read it. And so let me just share it with you. It says, this is Moses, right, complaining about why he wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. He blames it on the people, right? But the Lord was angry with me because of you. Right? And he vowed that I would not cross the Jordan River. Right? That's what every great pastor does. We blame our sin on the people. Right? So you blame your sin on the devil. Right? You say the devil made me do it. But as a pastor, we say the people made me do it right? because they're wearing me out. Right? This, is, this started in pastors in the beginning of time with Moses. So all right, clearly that didn't make you laugh as much as it makes me laugh. But that's okay. That's all right. All right, so let's, let's get into this. There's, there's two parts of this, this, this side of idolatry that I, that I think is, has escaped us because we're so locked into the main teaching that we've always been given for idolatry. And so again, so hopefully we're going to expand that for you tonight. So if, if you look at verse 23 and 24, this is the stereotypical definition for idolatry. If you've grown up in the church for any amount of time, this is what you and I have been taught. And I believe this is a form of idolatry, but I believe it's only half of it. And the other half we need to understand. In fact, I think it's the other half that we're going to talk about tonight that most of us are guilty of more often than not. Verse 23 says, so be careful not to break the covenant the Lord your God has made with you. Do not make idols 
of any shape or form, for the Lord your God has forbidden this. Now this is why he says he's forbidden it. Verse 24 says, the Lord your God is a devouring fire. He is a he is a jealous, he is a jealous God, right? So we understand that idolatry is misplaced worship. It's when I'm worshiping something else when I should be worshiping God. It's, it's, it's misplaced affection. It's misplaced loyalty. It's, it's, it's a misplaced sense of importance. It's when things in my life hold a place of significance that they should not, and it has a displacing effect on God, right? If you've been in church, right, this is what we've been taught. Now, that is idolatry. It is idolatry. But there's another part in Deuteronomy 4 that we've already read that we're going to work through together tonight that I think is going to help us see that there's a, another whole side to this, another whole side. When the Israelites came to Mount Sinai, Moses went onto the mountain. He was on the mountain for how many days? Anybody know? 40, right? 40 days and 40 nights. He was gone for so long, the people said, I don't think he's coming back, right? And then God took him. So, let's make an idol, right? Isn't that what they did? They, they took all their jewelry and their gold and Aaron, who was left in charge, right? He did what Moses, he blames his sin on the people, right? And when Moses comes back, why did you do this? The people made me do it, right? He learned that from his brother. So, so they, he took all the, and what did they make? They made a golden calf, right? And they're worshiping, right? And so, so God's saying, hey, I, he understands that people's inclination is to make some type of God that's tangible to them, that they can hold on to, that they can have a sense of possessing, right? They have a sense of ownership of this idol. It was common for pagan religions and idolatry, this form of idolatry in their day in ancient times. And so God knows that they're predisposed to this. So he's trying to help them. And he's saying, hey, don't do this. And what we see here is we're going to look at now in Deuteronomy 4, that idolatry is not just about a misplaced, it's not just about misplaced worship. It's about a misplaced sense of ownership is that when you don't understand who owns who in a relationship, your heart is vulnerable to what God would call idolatry. Now, why do I say that? Because the list that God gives, right? He gives this list. He talks about creatures and animals and people. And then, what does he say in verse 19? And when you look up into the sky and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the forces of heaven, he says, don't be seduced into what? Into worshiping them, which is misplaced worship, right? But then the reason that he gives, listen to the reason that he gives. For the Lord your God, he does not say here because the Lord your God is a jealous God. That's not the reason he gives. He said, because the Lord your God did what? He gave them to all the people of the earth. He's saying, don't worship these things because you don't belong to those things. You don't belong to the natural world. The natural world belongs to you. And when you don't understand ownership in a relationship, the wrong person ends up worshiping the wrong things. Genesis 1:28. listen to what God says to Adam and Eve. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and what? And govern it and govern it. Some translations say have dominion over it. Reign over the fish and in the sea and the birds in the sky and 
all the animals that scurry along the ground. It's interesting that the language in Deuteronomy 4 matches the language of Genesis 1.8. So he talks about don't make idols of things that scurry along the ground. In Genesis 1.28, he's saying these things that scurry along the ground. That God is trying to connect in Deuteronomy 4, the revelation of Genesis 1, which is that we were put on this earth to have dominion. We were put on this earth to be a steward over this natural world that God has entrusted to us. And when we lose our sense of ownership of the world that God has given to us, then we can find ourselves worshiping it because we forget that it belongs to us. Idolatry is not just about misplaced worship. It's about misplaced ownership, a sense of misplaced ownership. Now, you might say, well, Fred, I've never really been tempted to melt down my jewelry, right, and make a golden calf and worship it. It might be that you've never been tempted to carve some form of a bird and begin to say prayers to it. I understand that. That's a, a little bit uh, uh, displaced from us in this modern world that we live in. Oh, but we have things that we worship, do we not? I made a list just for you right, to help you out. Your body, your emotions, your mind, your home, your possessions, your money, your family, your relationships, your career. Anybody? Come on. Hobbies that you have. Even your, your spiritual life, things that, 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 that God gives to you for ministry to serve him can become an idol because it's, then it becomes about your ego. You tracking with me? Most of us in this room, we're not going to make things to worship but it doesn't mean that we still don't have an inclination to worship the wrong things. And one of the reasons what God is trying to help us to understand is that if you don't understand that those things have been given to you for you to have authority over them, that you've been tasked with God to be a steward of them, if you don't really recognize that they belong to you, then you begin to worship something that you should be having dominion over. Now, why does that matter? I think it matters is because God is preparing us for eternity, right? We believe that when Jesus died on the cross, that he died for the sins of the world, and that we make a vow of devotion to him, which maybe some of you, which we're going to talk about at the end of the service tonight, you might do for the very first time tonight. Heaven is promised to you, right? And heaven, the place that we're going to, right, is a heaven that Jesus has been working on since he left this world. We're celebrating his resurrection next weekend. When he left this world, in John 14, he said, I go to what? Prepare a place for you, right? He himself said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What's he talking about? Because in the book of Revelation, there's a new heaven and a new earth that God is making ready for us. Come on, that's awesome. What is it going to look like? I don't know, but it's going to be great. And it's going to be forever. And you're going to have a job there. Cartoons, they don't teach us the right things about God. We're not going to be angels with wings floating around on clouds for all eternity. You're reading the book of Revelation. It's a place of activity. It's a place of power. It, it's a place where awesome things are happening. People have jobs in Revelation, right? You read, and this person's doing this, and this person's singing that song, and that person is responsible for these scrolls. You have a job that you're going to be given when you get to heaven. I'm going to have a purpose in heaven. You know how God makes us ready for that? He lets us practice here. He lets us practice here. 
with the purposes that you're given in this life, he's making us ready for a purpose that we're going to have there that's going to last forever. This is your learner's permit. Yeah. Anybody teaching a teenager how to drive right now other than me? Who else? I know. I feel your pain. Anybody else? Just three of us, right? You're raising your hand and your mother's putting it down. That was awesome. Put your hand down, son. Put your hand down, son, right? I was joking with the Newport News campus last weekend about this, right? If you've, if you've ever taught someone how to drive, you've, 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 you've found yourself doing this. Break now. Break now. Break now. Break now! Right? You're, you're looking for the brake on your side of your car. Are you with me, right? And there's not one there. There's not one there. You're stomping and pushing, and right? You don't really realize how complicated driving is until you're teaching someone else how to do it. You forget all the things that you're you're doing. But you know what? Why this is important, why they call it a learner's permit, is because we recognize we don't want to put a 3,000-pound vehicle into the hands of a teenager and let them careen around town, putting all of our lives at risk until they prove that they're responsible enough to do it. Right? You with me? We understand this. We say, of course, that's what, that's what God's doing with us. Why would he give you a purpose that's eternal, that's going to last forever, and a new heaven and a new earth that might take thousands of years that they're putting together? Keith Green, um, I turned 49 this week, so my, my early Christian years, I grew up listening to Keith Green, and Keith Green had this intro to this one song where he said, if, if this world is beautiful as it is, took six days, and the new heaven and the new earth, God is, is, is spending thousands of years to create, then this world is like living in a garbage can. You with me? He's making something amazing. You've got a part to play in it, and he's making you ready. And if we don't understand the, this side of idolatry that's about misplaced ownership, then you and I might begin to shrink back from the responsibility that we have to work hard and exercising authority over the things that God has given to us. Put your time in. Make yourself ready for eternity. If you don't gain control over all of these things that we just read on this list, it's going to mess this life up. We understand that, right? But it could also have devastating effects on the responsibilities that you're supposed to have when you get there. See, one of the keys to not worshiping the things on that list is to making sure that you and I remember who belongs to who in our relationship with things and with people. Now, you might say, well, Fred, you know, we've been around City Life for a while, and we hear you talk about divine ownership and stewardship, and, and doesn't the Bible say that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof? So why would you say that we own it when really God owns it? And that's true. See, stewardship defines my ownership as ultimate responsibility. See, when I have a sense of, of, of ownership over the things that God has given to me, I still recognize that they ultimately belong to God. Stewardship just says that, that I have to do it as if they were mine, even though they are his. All right, let's look at the second part. The second part of where misplaced ownership comes is a form of idolatry. So it's misunderstanding who owns who with the things of this world, and then there's another part that's just as if not more important than the first. I want to start reading in verse 15 again through the first part of verse 16. It says, but be very careful. You did not see the Lord's form on the day that he spoke to you from the heart of the fire on Mount Sinai. 
So do not corrupt yourselves. Do not corrupt yourselves by making an idol in any form. Now let me jump down to verse 20. Verse 20. Remember that the Lord rescued you, right? This is Moses talking to the Israelites. Remember that the Lord rescued you from the iron smelting furnace of Egypt in order to make you his very what? His very own people. What does it say next? His special possession. See, this concept of ownership is all throughout the beginning of Deuteronomy 4 that's mixed in with this idea of misplaced worship. He says, because you've been, you, you are his special possession, which is what you are, which is what you are today. It's interesting that the verse 15, which in my heading says a warning against idolatry, right? It starts out by saying that the Lord did not give them, he did not reveal to them his literal form, right? We know that throughout the Bible, people have been, been given the privilege to be in his presence, right? But, but no one's ever seen his form. The closest thing that we've seen to the form of God is through Jesus, and that's when he took on the form of man. And we're not going to really see the form of God or have a revelation of that form until we get to heaven. And one of the reasons why we've never been shown his form is explained to us right here in Deuteronomy 4. He, he never showed us his form because he knew the inclination of the human heart would be to make an idol. It's interesting, isn't it? And why did God not do that? God didn't do that because he understands as human beings, if you can hold it in your hand, then you're vulnerable to the belief that this thing belongs to me. See, the second part of this idea of idolatry when it comes to our relationship with God and this idea of misplaced ownership is that God says, don't ever forget that you belong to me, I don't belong to you. Now, do we say that he's my God? Yes, we do. Do we say that he's my Savior? Absolutely. But those are terms of affection. They're not terms of ownership. God says, hey, never forget who's in control in this relationship. I am the boss of you, he says to us, because we are his special possession. It's the same conversation that sometimes you have with your children, all right? Right? We say, don't, right? Your mother probably said to you, like my mother said to me, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it, right? Right? We, sometimes parents have to assert who's in authority in the relationship. And that's what God's doing here in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He's saying, make sure that you understand who owns who. We own the things that he's entrusted to us as stewards, and then my life and everything that he's entrusted to me, in turn, we belong to him. So last week I started doing a little study, because I've never been taught this idea of misplaced ownership when it comes to idolatry. It's only ever been misplaced worship. So I began to do a little research. I began to think of, you know, out of all the times that the Bible refers to idols, are there ever possessive pronouns that are connected to those, right? His idol, her idol, their idol. And if you take into BibleGateway.com or Strong's Concordance and begin to look up those, you will find verse after verse after verse after verse after verse where there is a possessive pronoun that precedes the I. Listen to this in Ezekiel 14. I just pulled one for you, four through five. 
Tell them, right, Ezekiel, one of the great prophets of Israel, tell them this is what the sovereign Lord says. The people of Israel have set up idols in their hearts and fallen into sin, and then they go to a prophet asking for a message. So I, the Lord, will give them the kind of answer their great idolatry deserves. I will do this to capture their minds and heart, the minds and hearts of all my people who have turned from me, listen, to worship their detestable idols. You're going to see it all throughout the Old Testament that idols have a connection of possession associated with them. So then I began to do some more research and think, you know, but there was a lot of sacred elements that were part of Jewish worship, right? There was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, these things aren't idols in the sense that they, they, they represented a form of God, but, but, they, but there were times in Israel's histories, right, where idolatry became their sin because they began to worship the thing that was supposed to cause them to worship God. You with me? So there's the Ark of the Covenant. There's the, right, the altar in the temple. There's the basin. There's the showbread and the table and the incense burners and the, and the candles, right, the, the oil, right, the, the, the menorahs and all of these things. So then I thought to myself as I began to study, I wonder if ever there's just one time where there's a possessive pronoun associated with all of these sacred items that God made a part of Jewish worship. And you know how many times there's a possessive pronoun in connection to these things? Zero. Not one time. It's never their ark, it's the ark. It's never their showbread, it's the showbread. It's never their altar, it's the altar. It's never their basin, it's the basin. You can look. Genesis to Revelation. It's always an article. It's never a possessive pronoun. Why is that? Because God did not want the people to think that these things, that these things that represented God's presence in their life belonged to them because then they would begin to think, God is mine for me to control and manipulate to do what I want, which is what pagan religion is all about. Isn't it striking that one of the restrictions that were given to the Jewish people, right? We're doing our chronological reading plan, and we're in the book of Deuteronomy right now. And, and, and one of the prohibitions is don't burn your children's in the fire of Moloch. Why do they need to be told to not do that? Who, who would do that? People who have a religion that believe that their God can be manipulated because that God belongs to them through the acts that they do. And God says, that's not the kind of religion that I'm inviting you to be a part of. I can't be controlled by you. I can't be manipulated by you. You belong to me because you are my special possession. We like the affection that comes with the revelation of being God's special possession, but we don't always like the authority that's supposed to come with that. He's supposed to be a God of love in our lives who is also a God of authority that has the freedom to control our lives in every way and in every sense. You see, when, when I don't have the proper revelation of who owns who, oftentimes in a worship service like the one we were in today, I'll be silent instead of lifting my voice in song. It doesn't matter whether or not you can sing. I, I'm ter- I can't sing. I'm terrible. But something inside of me has to worship because I know that I'm his special possession. See, when I don't understand who owns who, then I'm going to hit that snooze button tomorrow morning an extra 45 times instead of getting up and reading my Bible like I told myself that I would when I went to bed. 
When I don't understand who owns who, I'm going to isolate when I should be showing up for that life group because I believe that there are going to be people there that I need to be I need to know and they need to know me. When I don't understand who owns who, when it comes to my material possessions, I will always choose to advance my standard of living instead of choosing to advance God's kingdom. When I don't understand who owns who, at times in my life when I'm supposed to be telling other people about Jesus, but because I'm insecure and self-conscious, I remain silent. You tracking with me? When I understand that my life belongs to him, and that I'm his special possession, I live my life differently because I'm living to please him and not myself and not the people who are around me. And can I just say that what I found in my own life as a father and a husband and as a pastor and as a neighbor, right, is that when I'm living my life the way that pleases him, I find that that tends to please other people more often. Anybody else with me there? And when I'm choosing to please myself, those are typically the times that people are the most irritated with me. Right? Some of you are looking at me like, I really don't know what you're talking about there, Pastor. Yeah, well, all right, all right. If you're married, your spouse knows. <laughs> so I've been in pastoral ministry since, since 1999. A long time. Many years. And years ago... I was working with another pastor on a, on a, on a, on a deal for a, a building. And, and, uh, and what I didn't know is that this, who, this, this pastor, who was a friend of mine, uh, went, went behind my back to work a deal that would cut me out completely. And I didn't find out about it until it was too late. Right? And, and, and when I met with him to talk with him about my disappointment, right? it's one thing when, when you're betrayed by somebody that you don't know. Right? It's something else when it's somebody who's close to you. It hurts, doesn't it? And some of you know that pain. And, and, and when I, in one of the meetings, we had a couple of meetings to kind of work through it. In one of the meetings, I kid you not, this is what he said to me. He said, he said, he said Fred, the, the fact that you spent 10 years in a corporate job before you crossed over into vocational ministry has given you some great experience in negotiating deals and contracts, but you're never going to close big deals like this until you learn how to pray. That's what he said. And in that moment, I wanted to reach across the table and see how far my arm would go down his throat. You, you're tracking with me? You ever had a feeling like that? Right? Where you're just like, I know that I'm supposed to turn the other cheek, but I want to turn their cheek right now. Right? And I thought to myself, I thought to myself, if betrayal is your definition of pray, I hope you're just done praying for the rest of your life. Because this isn't going to work out well for people who are friends of yours. I'm sharing that story with you because God reminded me of that story last Friday when I was doing this study, and I was trying to think, why, why, would, God, why would God bring this story up for, to me in this moment, in this time where I'm studying this? Just, it came to my heart just out of the blue. So I'm a big film guy. I love movies, and, and uh, I love the movie The, the Kingdom of Heaven. And, uh, and, and uh, it's set back in ancient times during the, the, the Crusades. And it's, not a kid, it's an adult movie, not a kid-friendly movie. So, so don't, don't go and get it on Netflix for family, t family movie time. But there's this scene where Liam Neeson is a knight, and he's giving his son, who's played by Orlando Bloom, an oath of knighthood. And when he's done with the oath, he smacks him across the face, right? I joke with the Newport News campus. That's what I'm doing to my children when they get their driver's license, Right? And this is what he says to them. He, he gives him the oath. He smacks him, and this is what he says. He says, this is so you'll remember it. Right? And, and, and I felt like what God said to me in telling you that story, that God said to me on Friday, he said, Fred, that was me 
smacking you. Because that deal that you lost, it was because of his betrayal and not because of prayer. But what he said to you was true, and I needed you to learn it. See, if we're not careful, we will rely on the natural abilities that we have in this life. And for some of us, for some of you, you have incredible natural ability. But the greatest things that you will ever accomplish in your life, and the greatest things that I'm ever going to accomplish in my life, are going to be done through prayer. And God was saying to me, Fred, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as my special possession, until you realize that prayer is more powerful than any human ability that you have, you will never fully accomplish all the things that you need to accomplish in your life. Now, why was he telling me that in relation to this study? Is because when I don't remember who owns who, I will be standing at times in my life when I should be kneeling. If I don't realize that God owns me, that I'm his possession, that I will find myself standing and working and relying on my own ability instead of being on my knees in a place of prayer. This deal that just closed with North Riverside Baptist Church for them to invite us to come in, has there been hard work? Yes, there has. Has, have there been negotiations? Yes, there have. Have we done strategic planning? Yes, we've done all of those things. But all of those things would not have borne any fruit if we had not spent just as much time on our knees in prayer. This Palm Sunday weekend, I, I hope that your understanding of idolatry just got twice as big. It's not just about misplaced worship. It's about misplaced ownership. And when I understand who owns who, then I'm going to be less vulnerable to worship the things that I shouldn't be worshiping because I realize they belong to me and I don't belong to them. And I'm going to understand that throughout my life that ultimately I'm God's possession. I'm his possession. And I belong to him. All right, we got a few minutes. I'm going to change gears on you a little bit. So I, I brought... My favorite shirt tonight. Anybody have a favorite shirt? Anybody? Am I the only one? Right? Hunter, thank you, Hunter. Appreciate it, brother. All right. All right. You guys are a tough crowd. My favorite shirt, I've had this shirt for probably about 20 years. I'm one of those people. My wife just said, stupid. Did you hear her? Yeah, I know. Stupid, right? You know what she says? She says, life's too short to own a shirt for 20 years, right? How many people are, life's too short to own a shirt for 20 years? Who, who are those people? All right. Now, how many people are like me? You have favorite things and you keep them forever. Praise the Lord. We, we are the majority here. Thank you. All right. Right? I've got shoes that, that I've had for since before Derek was born. I don't even wear them as much anymore because I don't want to ever let them wear out. You know, I'm one of those people. It's true. It's true, right? So, so I got that shirt out for Super Bowl Sunday. We were going over to the Nowatney's house, their regional elders, and moved over to Carrollton to help launch the Suffolk campus. And I thought, I think I'm going to wear my favorite shirt today, right? It's comfortable. We're going to be lounging around, watching the game. And, and as soon as I pulled it out of the drawer, I thought, I don't know. There's going to be foods that stain, right? I, I, this is what, yeah, I know. Some of you are saying there's medication that you can take for that. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> So 
I'm like, I'm, I'm not sure I want to, but I thought, you know, this is what I thought. You got to live a little, right? Because I could hear Vanessa standing next to me, even though she wasn't in the room. Life's, life's too short, honey. Wear your shirt, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wear my shirt, right? Because it's mine. It belongs to me, right? I'm not going to worship this shirt, right? right? I didn't have that revelation then, so I have it now. Right? So I put it on, get there, get my first plate of food. Oh, you know where this is headed, right? First plate of food. There's a crock pot there, and, and uh, I'm really talking about food a lot because I just came off a 15-day fast. And so I'm eating and talking about food as much as I can, right? I'm looking for one of those empanadas that have the pineapple and the powdered sugar. I mean, come on. Yeah, I'm dreaming about that. So I'm going to get involved in that life group. All right. So I, I'm sitting up on the couch watching the game, and I go to cut this meatball in half, right? And that meatball shoots out from under my fork like it was shot out of a cannon in Colonial Williamsburg, right? And it lodged, I'm not making any of this up, lodged right here into my armpit. And I thought to myself, I can hold it right here, right? And I can minimize the damage. But the more I tried to hold it, the more it began to move down my arm until it fell on the couch. So and I didn't just have a stain. I had a stain all the way this side down and all the way down the inside of my arm, right? Because I'm going like this. I had this huge tomato sauce stain. And you know what I thought to myself right away? You know, I shouldn't have worn my favorite shirt. <laughs> and I thought, because Laura's my friend, right? I wonder if Laura would do a little laundry for me right now, right? <laughs> but then I thought, if I ask Laura to wash my shirt, at a Super Bowl party, my wife will punch me in the mouth, right? Oh, she would if you know her, right? So I went down in the bathroom. I'm dousing it with water, right, because you got to dilute the stain. And, and then we have some type of voodoo mixture at our house. It's called OxyClean, but it's black magic, right? And so when, as soon as I got home, I doused that thing in OxyClean, and it's as pure as the driven snow, which is just lovely, isn't it? Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Why, why am I telling you that story? Because when we do things like idolatry in this life, like we just talked about, you know what happens? Is you get a stain on something that's a part of you that you can't see. It's on your soul. It's the eternal part of who you are. It's the part of you that's special. These bodies, these are just, this is transportation. The part of you that's sacred is the part that we can't see. In the, Hebrew, in, the, in the Greek, Peter calls it the kruptos anthropos cardia, the hidden person of the heart. There's a hidden person to your heart. There's a hidden person to my heart. And from the day that I was born, you know what I started doing? I started getting meatballs on my soul just like you. Every moment of selfishness, every impure thought, every time I did the thing that I wasn't supposed to do, and every time I didn't do the thing that I should, that's sin too. Stain after stain after stain after stain after stain. And there is nothing in this world that you can put on yourself that will get those stains out. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. And that's why we celebrate his resurrection next weekend. Because of this verse here in Isaiah. Where's my other Bible? Right here. Oh, I like this verse. Isaiah 1, verse 18. Listen to what God says to you. He says, come, come, come now. Let's, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, 
I will make them as white as wool. See, God has something that he can put on to you that takes out all the stains, and that's the blood of his son. This series, Good News, this is what the good news is all about, is there's forgiveness for sin. Cameron, can you come back up and play a little bit for me when we talk about this for a minute? And so how we want to close the service tonight is that is, is I just want to create a moment, which we're going to do in just a minute. I want to tell you one other brief story, and then we're going to do it, is that we're just going to create a moment of privacy, because it might be that some of you are here tonight, and you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ. You've, you've never had an opportunity for the stains in your life to be washed away. When we were doing the worship set, we sang a song tonight. I've not sung in a long time, right? I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. I, I grew up as a child in the 70s. Anybody else, right, in, the, in churches? There was a great move of God in the 70s in all mainline denominational churches. In the Episcopal church that I grew up in, there was a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit that my parents experienced, and they became a part of a team. They were called Faith Alive Weekends, where they traveled to, as a team to churches all throughout the state of Virginia, teaching them about the Holy Spirit. That's how I spent my weekends growing up. And, and one of the songs that they would sing in these Bible studies was that song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. I have decided to follow. No, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Now, I did turn back in my middle school and high school and college years. I ran from God as far as I could go. And it wasn't until December of 1990 that I make a vow of devotion to Christ that was my own, for myself, for myself. And the, one of the first things that I did so I got involved in the church that my parents were going to, which was an Assemblies of God church just outside of Richmond called Mechanicsville Christian Center. And one of the first things that I did in getting involved was begin to work with the youth group as a volunteer youth leader. And they announced that they were going to be going on this missions trip to Belize, and they were doing a, a vacation Bible school in a war refugee camp for El Salvadorians. And we spent two weeks in this war refugee camp. And there I was, as a young 24-year-old, brand-new Christian, brand-new Christian, and one of the nights in this cinder block shell of a building that we slept in under mosquito nets, the, the, this man who just, just died, just, just last, was it two weeks ago, Cowboy Bob was playing on his guitar. And you know what he started to sing? I have decided to follow Jesus. And I began to cry there, and that tears just streaming down my face because I knew in that moment, in that moment, I was never going back to the person that I used to be. And in that moment, I had the most incredible sense of cleansing. I had the most incredible, I had a lot to be ashamed of. And in that moment, I felt clean for the very first time in my life. And some of you, you've never had that feeling before. Some of you, you need to have it tonight. So I'm gonna to invite you to just bow your heads. Just bow your heads. Nobody's gonna do anything weird or odd or rummage through your belongings. I'm just going to ask you to do this right now. If you're, if you're here right now and you would say, Fred, I've, I've never made a vow of devotion to Christ. I've, I've never promised my life to Jesus. I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand just where you're sitting. Just slip it up. Just slip it up. If you would say, I've never, never made a vow of devotion to Christ before. Just raise your hand. Just slip it up. So, let, so let me ask you this question. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. I'm just, this is just going to be between you and God. I'm not going to ask you to get up, go anywhere, do anything, go to another room, talk to somebody, fill out a card. 
It's just between you and God. If you would say tonight, Fred, I know that there's some things in my life, there's some stains that I've never made right with God. I sure would like that feeling of being cleansed and being made whole. I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand where you are. Anything in your life that you would say? Yeah, come on. I see some hands popping up. That's good. Feels good, doesn't it? So I just want to pray for you if you've got your hand up. Father, I pray for every person that has their hand up right now. Father, you know these things that they're representing to you. You know the things that, that they see because you see them. The stains that are on their soul because of things that maybe they're even doing right now. Maybe things that they did before they came tonight. Maybe it's things that they're not doing that, that you're asking them to begin. And because they've been putting you off, that's become sin in their life. Father, I pray that right now, in the way that only you can do, that they would have an incredible sense of the cleansing of your Holy Spirit inside of them because of the blood, Jesus, that you shed on the cross for them and for me. I pray, Father, that, 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 that right now there would be this incredible sense of being made whole and being made new and being made clean and being made fresh and being made right, that they're going to be able to lay their head down tonight on their pillow as they fall asleep and, and, and maybe fall asleep with something that they have not had for a long time, and that's a clean conscience. And then they're going to begin to do the things tomorrow that you're asking them to do, and they're going to stop doing the things that you're telling them that they need to stop. And they're going to experience the beauty of 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, if any person be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. I pray that this Easter season for every person that raised their hand, this is the season of the old being gone and the new having come. The new having come. In Jesus' name, come on. And everybody said together, amen, amen. Hey, thank you for being here. Thank you for being here tonight. And, uh, and I know that I might not see you next week because I'm going to be in Newport News, but I hope the people in this room that you all see each other next week because you keep making God a priority in your life. Have a great Easter.